All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 347, and today we are talking about books being released on February 1st, 2022, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Danica Ellis, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Danica, hello! Hello! How's it going on the other side of the country? Good! I just got my booster shot uh, yesterday. Congratulations! Yeah, so I'm very excited about that. And I didn't really have any issues, which I'm stoked about. Yeah. (laughs) How about you? How are you doing? Mm, We're getting ready for 18 to 24 inches of snow. Unacceptable. So (laughs) I know. I'm like very fortunate that I don't have to drive anywhere. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we check in on elderly neighbors and my elderly father-in-law is very far away. So we have to make sure that everybody has food and water and people Mm -hmm. are going to get their driveways plowed out and all that stuff so that's what i'm trying to do right now but other than that i mean i like looking at the snow it's very pretty pretty (laughs) like right now it's so ugly out it's just so brown and gross because everything is dead right so speaking of dead i would like to just mention this real quick a last show possibly must have been last show um i mentioned that i was reading uzumaki by junji ito which is a japanese comic And I was told it was one of the scariest things that I will ever read. And I read it and I was like, okay, super gross, like very gross. And also it's Mm -hmm. about spirals. They're like, this is a horror novel or a horror book about spirals. And I was like, "Mm, okay. Uh, And it is like these scary spiral things and like it's creepy and definitely like disgusting. But I was like, Mm -hmm. was I scared? No. So then the other day, yesterday, the day before yesterday, I get this email from an ATBB and it says Uzumaki in the subject line. And I'm thinking like, okay, you know, somebody wants to talk about the book like people do. They, you know, send us emails and they're like, I loved this book and whatever. I open it up and to explain it short, like quickly, Adrian sent us an email of her daughter who put on makeup as one of the scary spiral face things in Uzumaki, and I was like, "Ah, now I'm scared. (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness, if I had to look at this, I would have been so scared. And also, I think I might throw my phone away now and burn my house down and salt the ground where it was, because Adrian, I think you mentioned that your daughter does this for a living. Uh, She's very good at it. And then I showed it to my husband. He's like, why would you show me that? And I was like, wow, yeah. Like, it's it's amazing. Just amazing. Wow. But, like, I was so not prepared. <laughs> yeah. I don't but, think like, anyone's ever prepared for that. Super, super impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It, like, if that was in the book, I would have been like, I'm scared now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really fun. So thank you for that, Adrian. And uh, something else I need to mention before we get started here today, uh, you can now find all the books on YouTube. You can find a closed caption version of all the books. Uh, We will put a link to where you can find that in the show notes if you want to check it out on YouTube and uh, read the closed captions. And so that's exciting. That's a new thing that we have going Mm -hmm. on here. And what else? I don't know. I feel really full of words again today. (laughs) Like, And what's funny is that you know, I listen to myself do the show. I listen to myself talking now. And I'm like, wow, I talk and I talk really fast. But then, like, I listen to myself guest on other shows. And I'm like, that person is an unhinged Muppet. Like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was listening to myself on the Nerdette podcast this morning. And I was like, wow, I talk really fast. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't even had any caffeine today. But I got up this morning being like, I have lots of things to say. So 
It's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, we are going to hear from our first sponsor. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Okay, so my first pick today is one of a few amazing debuts that I have to tell you about. It is The Violin Conspiracy by Brendan Slocum. This, like I said, is a debut It is about a young black man named Ray McMillan. He is a classical violinist. And at the very beginning of the book, his violin has been stolen. And then we go back and find out why this is important. Like, obviously, well, obviously it's important. His violin's been stolen, right? But, like, it's a big deal, and I'm going to tell you why. So Ray grew up in rural North Carolina. Uh, He lives with his mom and his much younger siblings. Um, His mom does not support his dreams of being a classical musician. Like, she calls his violin playing noise. She yells at him about it a lot. She just wants him to get his GED. She's trying to pressure him to, like, leave school and get a GED and start working at Popeye's because she wants money for rent and she wants money for the bills. And she wants him to stop making noise. And also, Ray, as a classical musician, is facing racism at every turn as a young black man. Like, his music teacher doesn't want to, like, teach him. Uh, No one believes that a black man can play a violin. You know, they're questioning him about it all the time. He has horrible encounters when he tries to play jobs um, because only 1.8% of classical musicians are black. So he's facing these horrible challenges and all he wants to do is play music. He loves music so much. He loves to play. Uh, He can't afford his own instrument. So he uses the schools. So like over break, he has to return it and he he can't practice and that breaks his heart. And this one Christmas when he's a senior, he goes to his grandmother's house. His grandmother has always been super supportive of him. She loves to hear him play, and she tells him stories about how her grandfather used to play what she called the fiddle and how great he was at it. She called him Pop Pop, and how uh, his grandfather was an enslaved person on a plantation in the mid-1800s, and he used to play the fiddle for the owners of the plantation. And when he was given his freedom... His owner, who the family suspects of also actually being his birth father, uh, gave him the fiddle when he went on his way. And this is, like, the story that they've always been told. And, like, it's, like, this disgusting, like, covered in resin, turning white with mold, like, just beat up old fiddle. Like, just really gross violin. But actually, what happens is his grandmother gives it to Ray And the family, like, the family has never wanted to play it. They, you know, her children are always, like, so bored with her story about her grandfather. They've never wanted to learn violin. So she gives it to Ray, and she makes it known, you know, that this belongs to him. You know, none of them wanted it. But as soon as she gives it to him, they're like, that's ours. That's in our family. Like, why would you? Like, they're just very greedy. And, but she's like, this belongs to Ray. So he plays on it all the time. And then 
as he gets older, he's playing in competitions and, and people are taking notice and he gets a scholarship to school. And his teacher takes him to get his violin cleaned up and fixed. And it turns out that what he has is a $10 million Stradivarius. Stradivarius violins were made in the early 18th century. They're considered the most amazing instruments of all time. Supposedly, 600 were made, but there are only like a little over 200 existing in the world. And now Ray is going to play in something called the Tchaikovsky competition, which is an actual real competition. It takes place in Moscow every four years, and he's very excited to use this violin. But then it is stolen a month before the competition. Now, there are a few people who could have taken this violin. When people find out that this young black musician has a $10 million Stradivarius violin, the story breaks. And like in a big way, like worldwide, every station is covering him. Every magazine is talking about him. So his family sues him. They want the violin for themselves. They want him to sell it and split the money. And he's like, my grandmother gave this to me. This is like an extension of me. I'm not getting rid of this violin. So they're trying to sue him to make him to force him to sell the violin. He also gets this letter from these horrible people, the Marx family, claiming that Ray's ancestor stole the violin from their family, that their family were the plantation owners, and that his ancestor stole the violin. But, like, they're so glad that he found it and he's been taking care of it and now, like, just hand it over. It's ours, you know. But, like, since he became famous, he's been getting letters from all kinds of people claiming to own it. You know, he gets, like, these... Wacky letters from people who are like, oh, that belonged to me. He gets letters from people asking for money because they think, like, he must be rich now because he's famous and has this $10 million violin. When, in fact, he works really hard and he sends all his money to his mother, even though she kind of doesn't deserve it. She's not a very nice lady. I've always been, like, interested in, in fame and in these kind of situations. I remember reading an interview with Jennifer Love Hewitt a very, very long time ago, uh, who, by the way, was an answer on Jeopardy the other day that nobody got. But, yeah, Jennifer Love Hewitt, it was an interview with her when she was, like, a teenager, and she was talking about how she got hundreds of letters a week from people asking her for money, saying that because she's famous, she must have money, and, like, could they have some, which I just thought was so interesting. And so he's having this kind of experience. But, like, basically the main suspects are either his family or this other family who have proven to be the ancestors of this plantation owner. But like, so now he's upset because this violin is his whole life. His teacher is telling him, you know, you totally can do this competition without it, but he doesn't feel like he can. He feels like the violin is what makes him perform well. So this is, it's being billed as a thriller, which I wouldn't say it really is because it's a lot about Ray's life. It is a bit of a mystery, like who took the violin, but it's more a story of racism and oppression, and fame, and assumptions. And, you know, it's about a young man who won't give up on his dreams. And the author, Brennan Slocum, himself plays violin. He's been a public and private school music educator and has performed with orchestras. So reading about Ray and how he talks about music and, like, how he plays and different pieces of music is amazing. And you know that the author knows his stuff. So it's, it's doubly exciting. It's a whip-fast read, you know, like I said, about family and music and history. I want to give content warnings for mentions of slavery, racism and racialized language, child abuse, and police brutality. This is The Violin Conspiracy by Brendan Slocum. Sounds really interesting. I just finished reading Light from Uncommon Stars, which is also about a young person learning to become like a professional violin player, which... It's interesting because I've never, I think, come across that in a book before. It's a, one of those weird matches. It's so, so cool. And 
I, I think I mentioned this on the show when I was talking, maybe like about that I was going to read this, but I didn't mention this earlier. But like this, these Stradivarius violins, they're so rare and worth so much money. And nobody knows how they're made because in order to find out, you would have to destroy one. Mm, mm-hmm. And so they're just like these unicorns of the music world, you know, and it's just amazing. And now I'm like, I want to play violin. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> All right. So today I have three different comics due to a weird convergence of events. Some of these I read because they were supposed to come out in previous months, and then they just ended up all coming out today. Uh, And then some of the books that I read for today got moved to other dates. So I didn't mean to read almost all comics today, but that's how it turned out, and they're all great. So I'm going to talk about them anyway. My first pick is Real Hero let's say shirt by Kendra Wells. I'm not going to say the actual name to keep our rating, but you get the idea. So lately I have been obsessed with Critical Role, which is a real play D&D podcast and show. And I just can't get enough of it, even though there are many hundreds of content for every campaign. So when I saw this comic, that it was a goofy queer fantasy graphic novel, and it had this title, I had to pick it up because that mix of fantasy adventure and ridiculous humor is exactly what I love about Critical Role and Adventure Zone and all of those similar media. And I definitely was not far off, although this doesn't directly mention Dungeons and Dragons. It sure looks familiar, and they even use a spell called Knock to unlock a door. So if you like D&D, I think you will like this one. It starts with Prince Eugene telling the story of his birth. The king died, and the queen, his mom, prayed for an heir, and he was born. And then we pan out to see that Eugene is lavender, and he's got these huge horns, and he looks a little different from his human-appearing mom. And he is laying in bed with a man and a woman, and they let him know that outside the castle, that story goes a little differently. The common people believe he wasn't a miracle, but came from the devil, what with the horns and all. But Eugene is sheltered from this kind of gossip, usually. In fact, it's illegal to insult him. He's a pampered prince who's used to getting what he wants, but he doesn't have any real leadership yet. So he is wandering through town and finds a notice for an adventuring party looking for another member. And completely on a whim, he decides he's going to join. And as you can imagine, the party is thrown by the sudden appearance of royalty in their midst. He is pretty hard to miss. Everyone knows he's the prince. He's got the horns and the fancy clothes and the general spoiled royalty demeanor. So the party consists of Michel, who's the half-elf rogue leader. He is scarred and standoffish and very matter-of-fact. And then there is Hocus, who is a non-binary human cleric who is good-natured but also not sold on this idea. And then there's Ani, who is a human mage who instantly begins feuding with the prince. They start arguing basically the second they make eye contact. And unfortunately for them, no one else has volunteered for this position, and they do need someone else to join the party to finish their missions that they've signed up for. 
So Michelle and Eugene spar, and the party has to admit that he actually is a decent fighter, thanks to all the years of fencing classes. And also, what are they going to do? You can't really say no to the prince. So they just get reassurances that they won't be arrested if he gets himself killed. And then the group sets off on their quest. So they're heading out to a town where people have gone missing to try to solve the mystery of what is happening. Along the way, they have to complete some small jobs to pay for food and rooms because Michelle refuses to use Eugene's money or his influence to cover them. So we get these kind of montage scenes of them doing these little quests along the way. Overall, this is a funny, silly, and a little bit sexy fantasy adventure. There are some fun little flourishes I really appreciated, like Hocus, who uses EM pronouns, whipping out a Venn diagram of Zhegden genders as a visual aid, or Eugene getting a rose background whenever he starts waxing poetic. Eugene, as a main character, is absolutely ridiculous. He is so sheltered that everything seems to come as a surprise. And he is always thinking about one thing, which, speaking of that, Ani and Eugene continue to butt heads in a way that suggests that there's some other kind of tension between them. And like any good D&D arc, it doesn't feel totally complete. We get glimpses into characters' backstories, especially Michelle's, that make me want to learn more. And it feels like we're just starting to get a sense of how these characters interact. But it does have enough of a satisfactory resolution that it could be complete in one volume. I am hoping that there will be sequels, and considering that this was originally a Kickstarter that raised $85,000 when its goal was $15,000, it seems like maybe there could be. And a fun bonus was getting to the end and reading the creator's bio and seeing that they have actually worked on Critical Role in another D&D live play show, Dimension 20, so no wonder I loved it. It was exactly what I was in the mood for at that moment. And that is Real Hero by Kendra Wells. I was like, wait, did she fade out there for a second? No, she's just not <laughs> saying the bad word. I get it. I, I get it now. I was like, how do I do this? <laughs> yeah. Listening to you talk about that book, I was like, oh, I want to play World of Warcraft right now. <laughs> but basically, I just play World of Warcraft so I can come up with like funny author pun World of Warcraft nice. names. But I was kind of mad because... Like they don't let you have a lot of letters, so like right. all my good ones don't fit. Like I wanted to do That's res- a challenge. <laughs> I wanted to do respawn updike the other day, and like psh, too many letters. I was mad. <laughs> anyway, moving on to something completely different. My next pick today is "Beautiful Little Fools" by Jillian Cantor. In case you haven't heard, The Great Gatsby is now in the public domain, which means that it has been out for over 75 years, and basically other people can now take the characters from it and the story and do whatever they want with it, which is kind of interesting. Like, imagine if people could do that with your life, which they can with some people's, like... Like, long after you're gone, suddenly you're on a box of cereal or, you know, they have you solving mysteries in space. You know, it's just, it's very interesting. But there have been a few books already involving great Gatsby characters. This is one that I read and I really enjoyed it because Julian Cantor has taken the women of the great Gatsby and maybe changed the end of Fitzgerald's classic and made it into an excellent historical mystery. So now... Here's the part where I'm going to spoil a century-old classic for you. So if you haven't read The Great Gatsby and you don't know what happens, you know, cover your ears. Uh, at the end of The Great Gatsby, 
George Wilson kills Jay Gatsby and then himself. Oh, another thing that I would like to point out is that I don't like The Great Gatsby. I read it when I was a kid. I read it in high school. I read it again as an adult. It's just not for me. And that's okay. But I like Julian Cantor's work so much that that is why I picked up this book. So, like, if you're thinking, like, doesn't she hate The Great Gatsby? Yes. But I loved this book. So, anyway, back to Beautiful Little Fools. So, in Beautiful Little Fools, a detective is looking over the crime scene that we have been left with at the end of The Great Gatsby, where George Wilson and Jay Gatsby are dead, and he finds a diamond pin in the bushes by the pool. And he's beginning to wonder, how did that get there? And he has a strong suspicion that perhaps the shootings didn't go down the way they first appear to have happened. So the the detective suspects include Daisy Buchanan, of course, known love of Jay Gatsby, her best friend, the golf pro Jordan Baker, who is working the, the golf pro circuit. She's struggling because she's queer and she's found love, but she has to hide it from basically everyone because it's the 1920s. And also Catherine McCoy, who is a suffragette and the sister-in-law of the deceased George Wilson. Now, if you also remember, her sister was killed by Daisy Buchanan driving Jay Gatsby's car, which is why George Wilson shot him. It's all very complicated if you haven't read. Well, I guess not that complicated, but anyway. You don't think you have to have even read The Great Gatsby to enjoy this book because it's so much fun. It's told in alternating chapters between the three women and the investigating detective. It is a jazz age mystery of romance and betrayal. We get to see Jay and Daisy early in their romance, like when they first meet long before Daisy's husband. Uh, We get to see Jordan's life, her time on the golf circuit. And we also meet Catherine, who is fighting for women's freedom and independence. And it teases the question, of course, what really happened at Gatsby's pool? I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I really did. I thought Cantor did an excellent job staying true to these characters, but also giving it an updated feel. And I found the story completely believable and compelling. And you get to see these different sides of very famous characters, you know, one of the most famous books in literature, uh, and some might turn out to be more villainy than you knew. And again, I, I read it because I love Julian Cantor's books. I think she's an excellent writer, and I think she did a really cool job with this. I do want to give, there's a lot of content warnings for this, uh, sexism, homophobia, chemical use and abuse, abuse by a partner, sexual assault, car accident, violence, and murder. That is Beautiful Little Fools by Julian Cantor. So I haven't read The Great Gatsby, but I did read The Chosen and the Beautiful, which is great. Also great. And is Jordan, like, gay in the original books, or has everyone just decided in the retellings that Jordan is queer? It's funny because if I didn't dislike the book so much, I I thought I was going to go back and reread it because I was like, I don't think she is, but maybe it's implied. But it's probably something that we also could just Google and find out right now, but... That's I just never <laughs> Maybe it's just the golf. <laughs> Everyone was like, meh, probably. Yeah. All right. My next pick actually came out last week, but no one talked about it. So I'm going to talk about it. And that's At the End of Everything by Marika Nykamp. And this is a story about a world that has fallen apart after a deadly respiratory illness. So that premise is either going to be a deal breaker or it isn't. Personally, I haven't been chomping at the bit to read an apocalypse or dystopia story lately, 
But this one intrigued me, and I'm glad I gave it a chance. It's a YA novel that's set at a juvenile detention center. So we follow three main characters who are all detained there. Logan is a nonverbal autistic girl who shares an invented sign language with her sister, Leah. The two of them are very close and dependent on each other, and Logan finds it difficult to communicate on her own. Then there's Grace, who's trying to control her anger, but it's made difficult when that rage is usually justified. And finally, there's Emerson, who is a non-binary teen who is still processing their parents' rejection after coming out. So we're introduced to them in the first chapter, and we get a sense of the strict routine that they act out every day at the Hope Juvenile Treatment Center. Despite everything, Logan appreciates this predictability, but something is different today. There are whispers between the staff, and then without warning, the next day, the guards don't show up. The teens imprisoned at Hope are left completely alone, and they quickly learn it's because a deadly plague is rapidly spreading and the staff has left to go be with their families with no consideration for the teens' safety. They have just been left Quickly, the group splinters into factions. So some of them want to stay at Hope and wait it out. They fear getting infected or getting caught and ending up in even worse trouble, whereas others want to use this as a chance to escape. One thing is for sure, no one is taking care of them. If they want to survive, they have to make the right choices. This is a fast-paced story that felt partway between a zombie apocalypse and... COVID-19. It's like a zombie story in that the real villains are the humans. There's distrust and infighting and even violence. There's also this fear that anyone could be infected and not showing symptoms yet. And the real challenge isn't dealing with the plague or the zombies in this metaphor, but in everyday survival, getting enough food to eat, having a safe shelter, that sort of thing. There were definitely moments that hit a little bit too close to home, like people who are treating the plague like it's made up or overblown, even as the death toll continues to climb. It's a story about justice and building a society together. They have to decide how to structure their little community, who cooks, who takes care of the sick, who buries the dead. They also clash over what to do when someone doesn't follow their established rules. So it ends up being a commentary on justice reform and prison abolition that I think would spark some really interesting conversations with teens. The juxtaposition between the story of a world-spreading plague and the focus on a really small, contained community worked really well. Well, it also includes documents to give glimpses into the outside world, including phone call transcripts and news excerpts, as well as drawn maps and inventory lists from Hope. If you can handle reading a take on an apocalyptic pandemic right now, I highly recommend this one. And that's At the End of Everything by Marika Nykamp. All right. My next pick is another amazing 2022 debut Oh, I've read so many good books already this year. It is Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson. It's simply amazing. I'm like, I'm just so in love with so many of this year's books. And also I read this and I'm like, how dare you? How is this so good? But it just is. Black Cake is set in different time periods. In the present day, a woman named Eleanor has died. And she has left behind a black cake, which is made from a recipe in her family, and a voice recording for her two children, Byron and Benny. And the story that Eleanor is telling them is about a young girl named Covey who grew up on an island in the Caribbean. Her mother left, her father starts drinking a lot, 
and she takes solace and joy in the ocean. She swims like no one else. She swims like a fish, Kobe does. And she has grand plans to leave the island right after high school finishes, and she's going to take off with her boyfriend, Gibbs, and go to college in London. But as we know, life doesn't always work out the way you planned it, and she ends up having to leave the island for very different reasons. So through this recording, we learn more about what happens to Covey, and we also follow along as Byron and Benny search to discover more about Eleanor, the woman that they thought they knew. We also learn about Byron and Benny, their lives, what's going on with them. Benny is an artist. She has been estranged from her family for many years, and her mother's death has brought her back in touch with her brother. Uh, and Byron is an oceanographer and sort of like the family favorite. The film rights to this book sold before I think they even announced the deal. Like, it's already in the works, so that's always a, a flag for me. It gets my attention. Like, whoa, they're already planning a movie. And it sounded amazing. And it absolutely is. Uh, so I can't wait to see, you know, these characters and this world on a big screen or a little screen. I also love sort of like a deathbed confession. Like, I love when characters or people in real life sometimes, like, tell you things after they're gone. Uh, or, you know, when they're dying, like, they say, like, oh, I'm not who you think I am. Or I committed this crime. Or, like, I, I love those stories. And this is this is one of those. It's just a beautiful story about family, identity, really about identity, like hiding who you are or, you know, being yourself even when you don't want to be, you know, or just being yourself. I want to give content warnings for racism, chemical abuse, and sexual assault. If you like Nicole Dennis-Ben, Angela Turner, Maisie Card, Ayana Memphis. Oh my goodness, I would love a new Ayana Memphis novel. Oh, but if you love those authors or just love to read a tremendously amazing debut novel, pick up Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson. And now we are going to hear from our next sponsor. Okay, Danica, what do you have for us next? Yes, I am going back to comics. So I have Crema by Johnny Christmas and Dante Luis. So this was originally a comicsology title that is now being released as a paperback. It is a short graphic novel, so I'll try to keep it pretty brief so I don't spoil anything. So our main character is Esme, and when she was a kid, she had the terrifying experience of seeing a ghost. It turns out that she drank so much coffee that she transcended and saw between worlds. And now, as an adult, she can see ghosts anytime she has a caffeine high. And she's a barista, so that's pretty much all the time. Which is helpful, because her best friend is Jerry, the ghost she saw as a kid. She got over the surprise pretty quickly, and they have been best friends ever since. The cozy local coffee shop she works at is about to be sold to some tedious investment bros who want to reinvent the place. And during the consultation, she meets Yara. Yara is part of the family that owns the shop as well as a coffee farm in Brazil. She is in New York to sell the shop to try to save her farm. During their brief encounter with each other, a couple of important things happen. So one, Esme bumps into an eccentric nobleman ghost in the basement of the coffee shop. He begs her to take a letter to Brazil so that he can reunite with his lost love. This seems unlikely, but Esme agrees just to appease him. The other is that Esme and Yara immediately fall for each other. Some might call this insta-love, but I prefer to think of it as a whirlwind romance. 
Yara invites Esme to visit the coffee plantation with her, and Esme decides to go for it, bringing the letter with her. There, the plot takes a turn to become a fast-paced, twisty, supernatural adventure story. Something is wrong at Yara's family farm, and it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Overall, this is a cute, enjoyable fantasy romance comic. It has some steamy scenes, but nothing explicit. There's also an afterword that I appreciated that explains some of the Brazilian cultural references, such as references to telenovelas. This is a fun read that I recommend if you want something cute, silly, and quick. And that is Crema by Johnny Christmas and Dante Luis. Okay, my last pick today is also a short one that I cannot tell you very much about, But I love it so, so much. It's The Employees, a workplace novel of the 22nd century by Olga Ravin, translated by Martin Aitken. I heard about this book a long time ago. I was watching an event with two of my favorite authors, Kevin Brockmeyer and Kelly Link. And Kevin Brockmeyer was saying that this was the best book that he had read in the last few years And weirdly, I watched Kelly Link interview John Darnielle the other day, and they were talking about indie press books, and I had to write down a bunch of those. I guess basically what I'm saying is watch author events with Kelly Link, because you get great book recommendations. But so they were talking about this book, and I needed to read it, so because I have friends in Euro places, I had them send it to me. And it ended up being shortlisted last year, at the end of last year, for the International Booker Prize. It didn't ultimately win, but it was shortlisted. It's so good. This book is very, like, the copy that I got is different than the copy that's coming out now from the U.S. publisher, but the copy I got is very small, and it's all black, but it has this random orange square on it that looks like a fluorescent orange post-it note, which I do have in my office, so I have tried to remove it from this cover at least half a dozen times. Like, I've leaned over and been like, oh, that must have stuck there. Oh, no, that's part of the cover. Like, I just, I'm like a goldfish with the castle. Like, I just go around and I forget, and I'm like, oh, post-it note, oh. And so it's hilarious because I really keep trying to remove this. Uh, the U.S. publisher that is releasing it, it has a different wild cover. It has a statue on it and some weird stuff going on in the back. And I'm so glad that everyone else is going to get a chance to read it now here in the States because it's amazing. Although I can't say much about it. But here's what I can tell you. I don't understand this book. And I love it so much that I have already read it five times. Like, it is my new fever dream. I don't know what's going on, but I love it. Raven is a Danish poet. This is a short, lovely book and these tiny little sections that are called statements. They are being taken from employees at a 22nd century company. Uh, The statements are like statement 101, statement 107, 108, 123. Like they skip a bunch. But basically these employees are giving accounts of a thing that they see in a room And how it makes them feel and how they feel about a lot of things in general. Some of the statements are being taken from employees who are not in fact human, but humanoids. And they all have these really deep, beautiful thoughts. And I don't understand it, but I just love it so much. Like, I don't need to understand what's going on if the writing is beautiful and it's so compelling. And that is exactly what this is. And it's also very short. I mean, it's like a hundred something pages and... It's so, so good. I can't wait to discuss it with other people. So if you like amazing books that you may, maybe, like, maybe it's just me. Maybe everyone else is like, oh, this is what this is actually about, Uh, you know, but it's so good. It's called The Employees, a Workplace Novel of the 22nd Century by Olga Ravin, translated by Martin Aitken. I can't believe you've read it five times. That is quite the endorsement. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I love it. it. It's, let me look. It's 135 pages. 
So, I mean, you know, it's like the size of like a regular book, like three sizes of a regular book. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, it's that good, though. I mean, it's so interesting. I don't even know why. I just I love it. Sounds really interesting. It reminds me of like the the old. It sounds like the the old fables of like the blind mice describing an elephant or something. Like trying to yeah. figure it out from the accounts. Yeah, it's really fun. All right, my last pick is surprise another comic. It's Magical Boy Volume One by The Cow. That's K A O. This is a trans guy YA graphic novel that plays with the tropes of the magical girl manga and anime genre. I want to recommend this with a few caveats. One is this is a book that contains a lot of transphobia. Despite the fantastical elements, it's mostly about Max trying to come out in a world that is hostile to him, including his mom. It's also not written by a trans guy, although I did get a lot of positive reviews from trans men readers that I found. It starts off with a page listing the content warnings, which are deadnaming, homophobia, and forced gender expression and transphobia. So when we meet Max, he is a closeted trans man who is only out to his best friend, Jen, who's a lesbian. Both of them are harassed at school by Piper and her other mean girl friends. Max also has something else he hasn't told anyone about. It's that he can see other people's emotions in the form of colored lights around them. So needless to say, his high school experience has not been the easiest to navigate so far, but it's about to get much more complicated. Jen got Max a binder for his birthday present, and while he is trying it on in the bathroom at school, Piper is harassing Jen. And then there is an earthquake, and while everyone is evacuating, Max sees a weird giant insect on Piper that is feeding on her light. Of course, no one else can see it. Buoyed by the experience of wearing a binder and feeling really affirmed by that, Max returns home determined to come out to his parents as trans. Unfortunately, it's at that same moment that his mom has decided to tell him about his magical girl lineage. It turns out that all the women in Max's family channel the power of a goddess of light to keep evil locked away in another dimension. And who knows how that is tied to gender or sex, but apparently Max is supposed to inherit this. So they transform all of the people who have been in this line and seal any cracks that appear between this world and this other dimension, banishing any monsters that make their way through. Max's mom is determined that he can only fulfill this destiny by learning how to behave like a lady. Max is obviously unimpressed, both by being the chosen one who has to defend the world, but even worse, the costume change, because when Max transforms, he is forced into an 80s-style fluffy dress in that kind of magical girl style. And on him, it is ridiculous. It's completely out of character. Max and his mom struggle to find common ground as she tries to train him for this role. Meanwhile, the cracks between worlds are getting wider and more frequent. This is part coming out story, part magical chosen one awakening. I grew up on Sailor Moon, so that's my point of reference, and I really liked how it played with the tropes of the magical girl genre, complete with sassy cat companion. Max slowly begins to harness his power in a way that feels right to him, which is shown by his magical outfit slowly transforming to suit him a little better. 
I really enjoyed the story, but Max does go through a lot of misgendering, including being dressed in this magical girl in quotes outfit for about half the book. His mom reacts badly to him coming out, and his dad is supportive, but pretty clueless and not super helpful. Meanwhile, at school, Piper and her friends tell Max and Jen that they're sinners, and Max is frequently misgendered in public. But I did really enjoy seeing Max's journey to finding his place in this weird context and finding out how to use his powers in a way that makes sense for him. There's also some moments that actually made me laugh out loud, which I don't do a lot while reading. This ends on a cliffhanger, but the next book comes out in September of this year, and I believe it's complete in two volumes. This was originally a webcomic that's now being turned into a graphic novel by Scholastic. I hope that we see even more trans, middle grade, and YA comics soon, and this is just the beginning. And that is Magical Boy, Volume 1 by The Cow. Okay, so those are our new books. What are you going to read next? I'm going to read a book that comes out next week, which is The Cold by Mariko Tamaki. It's a YA mystery novel. I'm only like a chapter in, but it's told in alternating chapters between this girl who's trying to solve the mystery and the ghost of the boy who died, which is super interesting. And it looks like it's going to be a really fast read. And I'm excited about that. I'm also going to read a book that I know I'm pretty sure you're going to be talking about next week, which is Bluebird, which looks amazing. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that one sounds awesome. And what are you reading next? So, well, first of all, I just want to start by saying I'm mad at someone on the internet. (gasps) No. I don't know who it is, but if when you hear me talk, if it's you, I'm mad at you. So I was reading this speculative fiction book, which I was really enjoying, and I just got done telling you about the employees in which I was like, I don't understand what is happening and I'm fine with that. But for this book that I was reading, which I'm not going to tell you in case you want to read it anyway, there's this one specific mystery and what I really wanted to know was how the author was going to explain it. And so when I was looking up information for it to find like the publisher date or something for something I was doing, right at the top of like Google, someone had written a Goodreads review and it said, the mystery of blah, blah, blah is never explained. And I was like, oh. And now I, I'm like, I don't even want to finish the book because that was the only thing that I wanted to know about this book. I might still finish it, but whoever that was, I'm really mad at you. Like, rude. Just rude. Yeah. Don't put that in the, in the subject lines. So now I am reading A Tiny Upward Shove by Melissa Chadburn, which comes out in April, which I just watched an author event, publisher event the other day, uh, and the author was talking about it and it sounded fantastic. So, but I'm still mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that is it for us today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at allthebooks at bookriot.com and send us your really frightening cosplay pictures because, oh my (laughs) goodness, Adrian, I'm so shook. You can also find us online. Danica hangs out on Twitter and Instagram at lesbrary. I mostly hang out on Instagram at Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can leave us a rating or a review. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. You can do it on Spotify now. Reminder that you can now find closed caption versions of all the books on YouTube. We will drop a link to that in the show notes. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search bookriot on your podcast player of choice. 
And in the meantime, happy, happy reading. reading.